Every journey begins with a question. Our journey begins with this one. How can we lead to make the world better? Here, we explore that question through journeys of great success and accomplishment, confronting challenges and overcoming obstacles with leaders from around the globe, whose experience covers a vastly diverse range of background, sector, role, and expertise. One common thread unites them all. They are all leaders striving to make the world better. They are all better world leaders. We're joined today by natural intelligence researcher, Lean Gorison, who gives us hope and insights as to how we can not only just do things better, but do better things by following natural systems and ways of organizing. So this was a free-flowing and fairly lengthy conversation, I must confess, but one that when I came to edit it, I simply couldn't just couldn't find anything that I didn't want to share with you all. And as Lean gave me a great compliment uh, in terms of how I sort of facilitated the conversation with her, I thought, well, here it is. And this is such a wide ranging conversation. We cover on a lot of topics, but all of them ultimately relate back to our key theme. How can leaders learn new ways, ironically, in this instance, old ways, millions of years old, but find different ways of contributing to our world, to teams, to organizations, to businesses, for profit, for purpose, for government, whichever. And Leeds had experience across all of those. So I'm going to do something today really for the first time, which is to make some suggestions to give you some essentially shortcuts through the maze of this conversation. So if you're somebody who's fascinated by or even just curious about this topic of natural intelligence and natural systems, but you don't right now have the time to listen to the full duration or you just want to sample in order to decide whether you want to listen to the whole thing. What I'd like you to do is to scroll down on your device to the show notes and in there, as always, there's the key topics, but in those key topics, there are essentially timestamps that you can just scroll through to and then you can make a decision how much of this you want to listen to. I highly recommend you just keep going from here and listen to all of it because it's really, really worth your time and attention. But if you don't have time, there is an option there. So we do talk about nature. We talk about specific elements of nature. We talk about the interconnection of almost everything to everything and how fundamentally as a species, we seem to have forgotten that. And that as leaders rediscovering that truth and looking at the science, looking at the data, looking at the research that Lean presents in her fabulous book, which is absolutely my favorite book of the year, Natural Intelligence, there is a very compelling business case there, in my view, that this is going to lead to all the things that we like to talk about here. Better outcomes for profit, purpose, people, planet. This conversation gives me real hope. It gives me almost a faith that we can prove that there's a better way to be and a better way to do. And as Lean says, not just to do things better, but to do better things. So here we are. Here's the conversation with Lean Gorison.
So, Lean Gorison, welcome to the Better World Leaders podcast. Thank you, Tim. I'm happy to be here. And here we are. We find ourselves at opposite ends of days and the opposite sides of the planet. And uh, you, know, you mentioned earlier that you had a storm brewing. You were worried that you know this might not work with internet connections, but it looks like a, a reasonably nice day for you now. Well, I wouldn't call it nice because it's still uh, quite windy in the first autumn storm, uh, but the heavy winds have gone down, so uh, it will probably okay. work out all right. Okay, yeah. good. So a question I like to ask early on, just to sort of set a bit of the context for people, is essentially what's happening outside your window. So since we've now just sort of answered that, uh, I'll reframe the question slightly, which is where are you and what are you focusing on at the moment? Yeah, so um, hello everybody, um, I'm calling in from Belgium, uh, which is a, a very populated and very little forested uh, place in the middle of Europe somewhere, and it's now noon here, um, so in the middle of the summer break, so uh, I'm just starting to catch up with my work uh, after a, a two-week holiday period, so... And Lean and I have been corresponding for a little while, coordinating this conversation, uh, and you've had a little interesting sort of personal journey to bring you where you're sitting today. Um, would you care to share any of what's been going on in your life over the past few months? Well, um, it's it's been a challenging couple of months because we had just sold our house before uh, the COVID crisis hit. And so um, we had to move uh, in the middle of the summer. And due to restrictions, we were not allowed to have any helpers with a move. Right. So okay. It was like a real logistical challenge to get everything packed and moved to the new place. And... Uh, but yeah, it worked out <laughs> on good. one of the hottest days of uh, of our summer. So um, yeah, it was uh, it was a very intense day, but uh, we're settling in now in the new place and uh, looking forward to the future plans. Um, yeah, and we will get to those future plans. And I know that that's yeah, the 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 whole house moving thing is a bit of a is a bit of a setup to the conversation because mm -hmm. yeah, that where that new home is going to be, uh, you know, I I I'm aware is going to be integral to your response to the inevitable question about where are you headed and what's down the road for you. But let's just hold that because we're going to get there. Um, but honouring the sort of anthropological origins that that I have, we'll. we'll do a little bit of chronology. Uh, mm -hmm. So what what has your journey been to bring you, you know, from a sort of a career and a life perspective to where you, where you are today? Yeah. Um, so maybe a good point to start is that I earned my feathers in biology. So I'm a biologist by training uh, with a specialization in ecology and evolution. Um, I did a PhD on bird communication a very long time ago. Okay. And um, after that academic experience, I wanted to work um, more outside of the ivory tower. And so for the past 10 years or so, I've been working in sustainability R&D. Yeah. Um, as a transition uh, coordinator 
at the Flemish Institute for Tec Technological Research, where I had its projects on sustainable land management, on accelerating transitions to sustainability, urban transitions, um, on a circular economy and so forth. Yep. And after almost 10 years working in that field, I decided it was time to launch something completely new. And so I founded my own company called Studio Transitio, uh, which is a company that aspires to help um, governments and businesses to innovate like nature. Um, because from my experience in the sustainability world, I had an aha moment realizing that we're still not getting to the essence of what needs to be done and what needs to be changed. And so I felt that even though I was working in the sustainability field, that my impact was just not good enough. So that's why I decided to start with Studio Transition and to really work on reconnecting people to nature and yeah. learning from nature how we can come up with solutions that are durable, that are resilient, and that are regenerative. Yeah. And so that's in a nutshell what I've been up to the last... That's uh, a very good nutshell. Yeah. Uh, that's, a, that's a very concise depiction of a, of a long and, 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 and you know, meandering but very constructive mm -hmm. journey. Um, and... I think that, that, that there's there's a few things in there that we'll probably circle back on and cross-examine, but the, the immediate launching pad that I'd like to proceed from is to talk about your aha moment. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, these are the salient moments that so many people reflect back on. You know, in this format, I like to refer mm -hmm. to those as moments of calling. Mm -hmm. um, and I've spoken on a number of platforms about one that I had on the roof of this building um, with a bushfire bearing down on us. Mm. Um, so that's a topic for a cup of tea in another day perhaps. But um, tell us about your moments of calling and, and, and what that experience was and the realisation that it, that it took you towards. Well, um, when I was working in the sustainability research field, I was engaged in a number of projects. Um, how can we accelerate sustainability in cities, for instance? Um, how can we move towards a circular economy? Um, and while the work is valuable there, it really felt like I wasn't doing anything in real life, you know, it's like all theoretical, but there is yep. just very little practical stuff. And one of the things that we studied in, in one of the project was how bottom-up initiatives help actually to um, realize systemic change. And so I said I want to be part of such a bottom-up initiative, also to learn from it, um, not only to, to publish uh, and, and write about it, but really to be engaged. And so I think it's about 10 years ago since I um, enrolled in a permaculture uh, course. Yep. 
Yeah, sure. Uh, we had just moved to our, our ho- home then, which had a very degraded garden. There was like almost no life uh, in the garden. It was like monoculture of grass with, with two or three bushes. And so I said, like, this is a, a piece of land. It can really hold so much life. It can bring so much flourishing biodiversity. So I enrolled in a, bio, um, a permaculture course to see how I could regenerate the land. And that actually was, was, was I think, the, the starting point for, for this aha moment. Because working with the land, um, the land became my teacher. Um, one of the things that I was really amazed at is even though it was so degraded when we started, so we suspected that the previous owners had used a lot of pesticides um, to kill off all, all the, the wildlife. If we dug a deep hole to plant a tree, there was not one earthworm to be found. And after only a few years of restoring and regenerating the land, the the land really started to flourish. Uh, the biodiversity started to come back. And it actually has amazed us how quickly nature can heal itself once you start yeah. helping it. Yeah. And even as a biologist, I was amazed of how quickly this process could go. And so in some weird way, nature became my mentor. And it also gave me hope. Because if you work long in the sustainability world, uh, there's a lot of talking, but there's very little doing. And if there's doing, it's even though it comes from good intentions, it's still stuck in the the paradigm of, of doing things better. Let's waste a little less energy or resources. Uh, let's increase efficiency a little bit better, but that's not going to get us out of the problems that we are having today. We really not. Uh, we really need to start doing better things, not doing things better. And so, I guess it was the garden that created the the environment for me to come to this aha moment of okay, this work that I'm doing here is not impactful enough. I need to let go which was quite of a tough decision because you, you leave all security of a well-paid job uh, in an esteemed firm uh, and start something completely new where you have no idea whether you can make a living out of it. Um, but it was something that I had to do. And well, the richness that came back, maybe not so much in money, but in in life lessons, in the people that you meet, in the projects that you get engaged with. It's, yeah, I, I wouldn't trade it for anything else. It's been an amazing journey and I'm very happy that I embarked on it and that I grow the, well, the, the guts to make that jump. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm very happy for that. Yeah, no, yeah, no, no, I mean, thank you for sharing. sharing. Okay. Did you just, Did you hear, just hear an echo? No, I didn't, but... Okay, okay. I'm, I'm getting one. Okay, yeah. But as long as you can't hear it, I can just ignore it. 
I didn't hear an echo. No. Okay. Perfect. In which case, we'll just sort of start over, uh, and we'll start over from me just sort of responding to the end of your 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 story. Yeah. This is just for me, just when I'm editing the video. So thank you, Lean, for for sharing that beautiful depiction of. Yeah, this sort of turbulent and, and, and tumultuous ride that you've been on. But yeah, there's a lot of similarities in that journey to a lot of the people that I meet in this space. You know, when you when you sort of sign up and you put your flag up and you say, Hey, I'm I'm about making the world better, it's really interesting and, and, and exactly, you know, the, the the experience that you've had, you know, I would say I, I'm at a far earlier point in my own personal journey than you are to have taken a lot of the same risks, but yeah, the more recently, but it's, it's the people who sort of step forward and the people who mm -hmm. move away. And I refer to it like this sort of gravitational force, mm -hmm. you know, you sort of, you, you find this sort of fulcrum of purpose and, and you start spinning on that. And what happens is that the people who, who are already in that similar orbit, you know, they, they, they mm -hmm. sort of come towards you or you towards them, however it's actually working. And then others who ultimately might have seemed more proximate, but, but ultimately mm -hmm. I've got to not hit the microphone. Their gravitational mm -hmm. orbit was actually going to take them away from you, but that becomes that much more pronounced. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I, I, the one thing that, that really stood out, um, and it resounded because it was one of the key phrases from your book, which we'll get to in, in, uh, in, in, in some time, but you know this this sort of shift that you know you're calling for between stop just doing things better and start mm -hmm. doing better things. I mean, I, I I could literally just sort of like hang out around that phrase for an exceedingly long period of time and longer mm -hmm. than we have here. Um, but if you wouldn't mind, I'd actually like to sort of follow that line of inquiry specifically with some examples. And if we may, since this is a leadership podcast, we might explicitly talk about some of the things that you, you know, sort of believe organizations, businesses, and leaders can do. Mm -hmm. um, so just, just as a broad question, what are some of the sort of things that you think are commonly done that are simply doing, you know, sort of things in a slightly better way? And what are some of the things that we actually need to start doing that are in of themselves better things? Mm -hmm. um, well, where shall I start? <laughs> do, you want a, do you want a broader question? <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, um, I have many answers in my head, so I have to choose which one um, is the probably the most uh, appropriate right now well if you would look at um, organic agriculture for instance sure okay call it bio landbouw bio but organic agriculture it is definitely a good step and i try to buy as much uh, of our foods um, um, from from organic agriculture as possible but on the other hand, it still follows the old paradigms of mass production, of yeah. monoculture thinking. And if you look at nature, nature does neither of that. If you yeah. look at how nature produces food, it's always diverse. 
it's always in different levels. So not just like one maize fields in a monoculture. It's very diverse. You have um, plants that grow below the soil. You have soil coverers. You have herbs. You have shrubs. You have trees. So, so nature uses all the space there is. And so I think for me, organic agriculture is just... Well, agriculture, but a bit better. Mm. While if you look at permaculture and food forests, that's really doing food production in the way that nature does it. So that's yeah. really about designing better, better things instead of doing the old processes better. And it also relates to my personal story. I wasn't... Um, an expert that worked at a sustainability research company. And while they do a lot of valuable and good work, they always start from the very mechanistic, reductionistic logic of life. Um, and for me, that's one of the root causes of why things are going so wrong today. Uh, the world is not a machine. The world is a living organism, just like our body. And um, having all the elements and right relationships is crucial for the earth to be healthy, just like it's crucial for your own body to be healthy. And so that was why I could no longer stay working in, in that environment, which is so very much based on, on an, an idea or a, a set of paradigms which are no longer appropriate in today's world. So I hope that answers the question. Oh, no, I think it's certainly uh, well, it's the answer you've chosen to give. So we will say, yeah. that, yes, it does. Um, what, well, I mean, I think certainly the, the analogies that have been going through my head yeah, and even as you're going through your 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 first sort of depiction, uh, you know some of the inherent challenges with monoculturalism versus any of the, you know, whether they're very, yep, sort of laissez-faire, sort of natural, you know, sort of generative mm -hmm. processes where you're really just essentially sort of going into, you know, a, a, a pure natural environment taking the produce that, that, that the seasons provide and coming away, or whether it's one of the more, you know, sort of interventionist managed systems um, where you're cultivating and nurturing these, you know, sort of stacking, um, you know, systems. I think to me, I can and will, you know, as an organisational behaviourist, make direct comparisons to the way that we operate mm -hmm. at a societal and, and organizational level you know you can walk around a business of almost any size these days and you find what you could actually look at and go right well over there are the x and over there are the y's and over here we have the c's and the b's and the z's right like and it's like being on a farm you know and i grew up on a monoculturalist farm where we had corn and grain and mm. peas and sugar beet mm. And that's like walking into an organization and well, here's sales and here's the accountants. And mm. this is where the, the, you know, the chief and the assistant chief and the chief assistant to the assistant chief sits, right? Like mm. everything is diverse. Everything is sort of almost sanitized in a way. Um, mm. And then there are other organizations where those lines of separation don't exist or they're less 
sort of systemic and mm. you know they're more reactive or they're more responsive or you know and they, these are the sort of the classic things that exist within agility mm. and so on well, we'll come together we'll sort of huddle up and we'll 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 might go off because we have a specific project like we need to deal with the obvious example the year-end accounts so we'll cluster as accountants but then we'll go back into the business and so on um and i know i'm really simplifying an analogy um but it's interesting how often one actually experiences this where you walk the hallways of mm. organizations and you find people who sit 20 meters away from each other have never spoken don't mm. know each other's names and you as a facilitator for example are introducing people who have worked together for years yes right and it just i think the, you know, the comparison with you know these two plants who mm. you know ne'er the the two will meet mm. um it, it's 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 a really almost stark comparison between mm. two systems which are inherently dysfunctional mm. right? yeah. and dysfunctional and this is where again you can read the you know like the the permaculture literature and you mm. can read the organizational behavior literature and you see similar language about mm. resilience and about yeah. you know, productivity you know and, and about how you know you mm. can sort of basically manage these systems to to be more beneficial mm -hmm. and then you look at the organizational context and say, well how can we be more adaptable how can we be more agile how can we be more mm -hmm. resilient it's like well try mixing your people up and seeing mm -hmm. how the ideas come i mean it's obviously not that simple um mm -hmm. so slightly awkward segue but can, can we just sort of head over for a moment in the direction of mm -hmm. your so the, some of the commentary we've had leading up to, to to this discussion, we spoke about language and some of the inherent challenges with language and and how language is actually potentially holding back some of these well-intended movements. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm not sure that I'm even going to frame a specific question here other than just say, let's talk about language and why it's a problem sometimes. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and your analogy... I've thought about that also a lot of the times. And sometimes I think the food that we eat, which is predominantly produced in monocultures, might even influence our brain. So we, we create monocultures of thought, right? And you can really see that how we engage with the land in the control and demand uh, fashion like we want to control and demand the crops to grow manage it um, um, and yeah just with with a focus on on, on outputs uh, and yields and we're doing exactly the same in, in businesses so instead of creating the enabling conditions so that plants can grow so that there is a wood wide web underneath that connects everyone that makes sure that the nutrients get shared that uh, healthcare gets shared that there's a good communication system we we treat our people like a, a field of corn or maize like i just want to have the outputs and then you're discarded and well, I guess we've seen from the maize fields that it's not working, especially not now when, when the climate is changing because monocultures of crop and monocultures of thought are very vulnerable when it comes to, to um, disruption and change. So, so yeah, I think 
there's a huge opportunity for organizations to rethink themselves and use nature as a guidance. Um, if you if you have like a company with only engineers, you can only devise engineering solutions and they will probably not be what nature would do because you have no connection whatsoever. If you're a company of um, only white people, you will only dev, uh, design products focused on, on white people instead of all the many colors of the rainbow that, that there are out there. So diversity is actually one of nature's um, solutions or even it's, it's, it's even more than a solution. Diversity is what keeps the door open for new innovations. If there's no diversity, then yeah, the, the genetic health goes down. So diversity is really like the, the door of opportunity for new solutions. Um, and to circle back to your question of language, um, I think that one of the, the things that we need to do is to renature human nature. We've all been focused so much on industrial logic, on reductionalism, on the mechanistic worldview that we've lost all the language that that we used to have about nature. Um, as I write in my book, um, if you look at indigenous peoples, they never call nature it. While we always phrase something from nature it, that animal, it's a it, that plant, it's a it. Um, while, while indigenous peoples always refer to them as their relatives because they know we're all connected. Um, so, so, lang so we need to, to relearn a new language um, and having nature um, back into our language uh, might help us to come up with better solutions for, for all the challenges and problems that we're facing today. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's an enormous amount in there and, and th yeah, there is an enormous amount in your book, which don't worry, we're going to be yeah, sort of directing people towards very soon. This is not just a, a sort of a teaser show. But I, if I may, I'd, I'd just like to continue that line of inquiry again about you know, some of the specifics. You know, I think, so if, if, if you know, somebody's listening to this that's an organizational leader and you know, these points, uh, they would be ignoring everything that I say, of course, but the stuff that you're saying will absolutely land and they're saying, okay, wow, yeah, Lean, you've just nailed that. I, I, I really get the sense of this. What might be some of the you know, specific terms or if not, you know, purely the linguistic approach, what are some of the, you know, sort of initial points of examination that you'd suggest that they start with in order to, to sort of start this very gradual progressive shift of evolution? Um, well, I would say there's two lines to follow. Um, the first one is to, to become more aware of the systemic nature of things. Um, and I, I use the metaphor of our own body a lot. Um, so, or a metaphor of a car, 
you can have all the elements of a car, but that will not bring you to where you need to go. You need all the elements in their proper place, performing their proper role and in the right relationship to each other. And then the car can take you from point A to point B. Uh, the human body is the same. Healthiness requires all the elements to be functioning in a proper relationship uh, with each other. Um, and the same applies for the body of the earth. So um, I would um, advise especially leaders to, to take some time out and reflect on this um, um, to learn about the systemic nature of, of how everything is connected to everything else um, and how healthiness depends on all elements performing their right role and being in the right relationship with the other elements. And then you can go back to your business and ask yourself, okay, so how is my business now helping to increase the health? Uh, the healthiness of the planet, the wealth of the planet, the vitality, the viability. Um, and I guess often businesses will come to realize that at this moment it's not. And then uh, the second route is to grow the courage um, in yourself to tackle that. It might, it might sound unachievable, but if you look at nature, so many other species have already done this. They leave the world better off than they found it. They create regenerative impact. So if ants and bees and whales and foxes can do it, then surely we humans with our big brains can do it too. But we will have to rethink how we can arrange our business in a way that it actually leaves the world better off, not worse uh, like it is now. And so the first step um, to summarize is to become aware of the interlinkages. And the second step is to grow the, the courage um, to do something about it um, and to not lose heart or hope um, because I'm pretty sure that it is possible if you look at, at how the animals have done it, the plants, uh, then we're also a part of nature, so we can do it too. But we don't have a lot of time left. Um, time is, is of importance, so we need to do it quickly and radically. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So there's... Um... There's about 500 things that I'd like to say now, so I'm just going to pick a couple. Um, and, and I'm just going to punctuate here and say we are absolutely going to come back to another question around suggestions for how somebody might put some steps in place to make their organization a better provider of a better world than it's currently operating in. So let's just say we're going to come back to that point. But hearing you go through your description of, okay, yep, let's let's think about an organization as a body or a, 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 a natural system. Um, I, I, yeah, I haven't considered this for, for years, but 
a couple of years ago, I was I was working as an executive coach to a CFO of a large organization, and there was a lot of dysfunction in in the organization between the different functional structures. And we were sort of wrestling with this and wrestling with her relationship with her peers and so on. And she was struggling to find the language to convey and identify the specific problems. And we had used a couple, she was an athlete. So, and we had used a couple of analogies earlier on to look at, okay, well, if you're injured, what do you do? Or if you're running a, yeah, you know, the, the simple stuff. And I sort of posed the, the, the example to her of, okay, why don't we think about the organization as a body and which form of the body would you say your team, the corporate services team plays? And she was a little bit unsure of exactly where I was going with this. Um, so I said, well, why, okay, why don't we think about it this way? The most obvious one, you know, the C-suite is the brain. Okay, mm-hmm. so that's the decision-making faculty. Right, great. How does it? How does the brain get information? Right, where's the where's the sensory nodes? Mm-hmm. Where's the nervous system? Like, where are all the points of connection that enable the brain to actually receive data and then interpret it and make a decision? So then we had a conversation about who were the generators and transmitters of information in the organisation, and then we talked about well, let's think about the providers of structure, which in an organization is typically systems and processes and governance. And that's the skeleton, right? That's Mm -hmm. actually what holds the organization up. That's what gives it shape and form in the Mm -hmm. world, right? It's not its facilities. It's not its products. It's not its supply lines. Like those things just come and go, you know, like air and food and so Mm -hmm. on, inputs, outputs. Those are the things that actually give essentially, you know, sort of a, a vessel that the organization can transport itself in the world. And then we talked about, well, are the sales force the muscles, the ones that sort of give motion to the organization, or are the sales force the skin, right? Like they're what most people perceive the organization mm-hmm. as. They're the, the sort of the surface layer that experience the organization, and they are the first line of defense and the mm-hmm. first receivers of information. So, yeah, I mean, it was just, it was an interesting conversation, which really enabled her thinking to shift about how mm-hmm. she could absolutely realize if one of these parts is deficient and disconnected or in disharmony, then the whole thing's not going to work. Mm-hmm. And if you have a, you know, if you've got a fractured shin bone, it might only seem like, or even just a, you know, a metatarsal injury, like just a small part of the foot, there might mm-hmm. be that minor system but over an extended period of time, it's going to bring the whole thing down. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, extended analogy. Um, I, I I can't resist my curiosity um, around these analogies that you reference in your book about animals that you know sort of create right and the influence that these sort of single species mm-hmm. have on whole ecosystems. Um, could I ask you just to choose one of the species that you reference as an example of how quickly, you know, the, the sort of the removal or the return of a single species can dramatically change a system? And then we'll come back to the, the stuff about organizations. <laughs> yeah. Oh, now you asked me to, to choose one and I love just, them. You're going to have to. I know. I know. I'm sure this was a, a difficult process of assimilation yeah. to get to the, those that you list in the book, but I'm putting you on the spot. I appreciate 
Yeah. Um, well, let's talk about one that uh, is hardly ever mentioned, but one that has actually been vital for the evolution of humans, and that's the mushrooms. Um, it's 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 not as fluffy as a polar bear and um, it's not as deadly as a snake for instance but mushrooms are I think probably the most sophisticated life form that the planet holds at this moment um, they, they've also been one of the first um, species uh, to evolve and only recently they have discovered that mushrooms have an incredible ability to influence the weather. Um, okay. And maybe it's a nice story to tell because I stumbled upon it by accident. Uh, we have two dogs and one day, two years ago, I took them out on an evening for our evening walk. And it was already a bit moist in the air. And there were some polypore mushrooms um, on on a high part of a tree, and it looked like they were on fire. So a lot of thick smoke was coming off of them, and the smoke traveled upwards. Wow. And well, being a biologist, I knew they weren't on fire. They were probably firing off spores, which are like the seeds, the seeds of the mushrooms. But what intrigued me is, is that they were traveling upwards. It was quite counterintuitive. I would have expected them to fall down. And so when I got home, I researched it and I discovered a very recent publication uh, from a team of researchers that have actually um, discovered that mushrooms make rain. So if you study the mechanism of how mushrooms um, set free their spores, then you can see if this is a spore, it's sitting on, on a little chair and uh, the spore attracts vapor, water vapor from the air. The air forms into a droplet and when the droplet slides down, it releases the, the mechan mechanistic part that kept the spore in place, so the spore is allowed to travel up with, with the currents of the air. And um, so these scientists discover that um, in the atmosphere, uh, the spores do exactly the same. They attract water vapor and they form droplets. So mm. we now know that um, millions of tons of, of mushroom spores, they don't stay here uh, on the soil, they actually travel up into the atmosphere and there they make rain. And while well, fungi needs rain and a moist environment to reproduce. So how ingenious are these so-called primitive, uh, we call them primitive, I would never call them prim primitive, um, but how ingenious that they have devised a strategy to make it rain. Yeah, so, and, and effectively become a self-sustaining, sort of self-perpetuating. Indeed, yeah. So they influence the weather patterns long into the future to guarantee that, that not the next generation or the, the, the next seven generations, but the next hundreds or thousands of generations of spores 
will have a moist environment to grow into fungi and, and mushrooms. Um, so, yeah. so, so yeah. they of themselves for themselves are making yeah. their world better. Yes, yeah. So they are actually creating uh, a positive impact for the the future generations. Um, no, very, very good, very yeah. good. Yeah, I think the. I mean, the, the, just to, to spend now a few moments on mushrooms. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to get the name of it, so I'm not even going to try. But I think the largest living organism is, in fact, mm -hmm. a fungi which lives under a forest in Oregon in the US. Yes, um, yeah. I Thank you. Uh, and it's very old, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's an extremely yeah. old um, yeah. entity. And what's also interesting, I don't think it's in the exact same area, but there's also there was a study I was reading I forget exactly where, but it was somewhere in the US and they were they were they were essentially sort of charting how the um I think it was a pine uh species were sort of nurturing their offspring through nutrient transmission through these sort of fungi root connections. So so the, the, when they first started researching, and, and this, you know, I'm recollecting an article I read very quickly some time mm -hmm. ago, but you know, they, they when they first identified that the mama tree was basically nurturing her young mm -hmm. over some distance, they thought, oh well, there must be a direct root connection. Mm -hmm. Like she's she's got, mm -hmm. and and then they realised, well, actually, no, that would be very very difficult, mm -hmm. uh, and it would just become far too complicated. What they're doing is they're essentially in synergy with mm -hmm. these fungal uh, networks in the soil, yeah. Yeah. and in some way they're able to target the nutrients to go mm -hmm. there. Uh, yeah. And they were effectively it was like a family system that in this complex forest you could see the older trees, you could mm -hmm. chart the seed patterns, you could go and do the genome studies to mm -hmm. prove that they were direct relatives, mm -hmm. and now they're actually behaving like parents with their kids. And they're mm -hmm. using kind of like a fungi supply chain to to, to transmit the uh, the nutrient benefits. Yeah. I call um, that the wood wide web. <laughs> yeah, I love it. <laughs> and love then it. research has also shown that they not only share nutrients with their own offspring, but with other species of trees as well. Yeah, right. So you can see this. Um, this very social behavior between different species, it originated yeah. in nature. Um, yeah. And the other one that I'm aware of is this sort of um, like it's an attack stimulus, right? Mm -hmm. Like if a, if a parasitic organism, be it a fungi that's invasive and, and, mm -hmm. and aggressive or it's an insect or whatever, like relatively quickly the trees will actually signal each other mm -hmm. that, something's going on and they'll, they'll either secrete something or they'll change their behavior or they'll do something in some way so that the forest, yeah. um, I think it's Peter yeah. Wallengren's work where I first came across that. The, the yeah. The, for me, the wood wide web is like nature's internet. Uh, and yeah. it's not only used for communication, but it's used for uh, nutrient sharing, for healthcare uh, sharing, um, for energy sharing and so forth. So, so this, yeah, I think our internet could learn a lot from from the wood wide web. Uh, well, I, I'm actually, I was, I'm, I'm glad that you, you you sort of have provided that that little sort of platform there because I was actually wondering whether or not we could, again, sort of try to sort of form that loop back round. Mm -hmm. 
talk about how you know, organizational systems like internet, intranet, mm -hmm. effectively could be used to be conveyors or transmitters of information mm -hmm. in a way which is essentially more holistic. And that the purpose of that explicitly, you know, let, let's be upfront about it, is to improve the organizational health mm -hmm. and therefore the organizational productivity and profit. Um, but so some of these initiatives that we're seeing around, let's talk about inclusiveness, let's talk about well-being, mm. you know, let's have even just topical areas for these things that are not related to business. Mm. Do you think that that is something which is going to be beneficial from the point of view of nurturing this more natural organizational system? Yes, yes, sure. Um, if you look at natural systems, um, some of the principles you can can narrow down in, in what we call simple rules. And if you look at this, this uh, multi-species ecosystem of a forest, one of the simple rules that they abide by is invest in the health of others to ensure your own. And what, what forests also do is they create microclimates. Mm. So if, if companies could uh, adopt these principles, like invest in the health of others to ensure your own, and there's a really brilliant example from Visa, the Visa cards, uh, the, the original founder, how he looked upon this. Um, but we can maybe go into that later. Um, and creating the conditions. Now you see that um, most businesses are organized into tasks. You yeah. have to do this, you have to do that. Um, we need uh, a certain culture to achieve that. Uh, but forests, and, and like the example of the fungi, they create conditions that are conducive for others to flourish. So if we could take that insight and rethink organizations into, instead of creating hierarchies and tasks and, well, isolated islands, how can we create the conditions for this organization to have a beneficial impact on the wider environment? And what needs to change in us in our teams and in our organization to do that. And that's a way to rethink the way that we work together, the way that we collaborate, the way that we're organized and structured. And so this concept of the wood wide web, fungi and, and trees is actually a good concept to study. How do they organize? You can see that there's, there's hubs, there are mother trees who have more connections than the other trees. Um, so can you redesign an organization more in that way um, so that everything gets shared uh, so that also the siblings get enough nutrients to grow into mature trees so that if a tree falls, that it's not wasted, but that it actually leads to new life. Um, and it's it's a very different way of thinking. And maybe it's, it's very biological too. But if we understand the biology, we will also understand 
how we can unlock all this hidden potential inside the organizations that is there, but just is not allowed to come out because we create conditions that prevent this potential uh, to grow. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's come back, it comes right back to one of your very first points about the this sort of inherent separation that we've created between yeah. ourselves and nature and our systems and nature and mm-hmm. all of the essentially frameworks that we would point to as now mm-hmm. dependent, that we are dependent on them or it's an independency um, nonetheless, but still that, that it's us and our systems and our structures and then it's the nature stuff over mm-hmm. there. Um, so not only is that essentially inherently untrue, like we're animals, we're part of nature as much mm-hmm. as anything else, we just choose to believe something different. Um, but also not only are we, is there a real opportunity cost to thinking that way, but it's, 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 it's dangerously harmful to continue mm-hmm. to do so. Um, yeah. So there's, there's any number of reasons why we need to change. Yeah. I forget the, 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 the case study and I, we're going to have the, we're going to come back to visa in just mm-hmm. a moment, but I, I, I'm recalling a case study that was of a small business park, I think in Italy, and it was explicitly set up as an ecology. Mm-hmm. And it was, a, it was a sort of a closed loop. It was like a very micro circular economy experiment. It was in the 90s, I think, where they set up a hub with all of the customers and suppliers within mm-hmm. like five kilometers of each other. And they said, look, the way this is going to work is... You, everybody gathers in a community in a central hub area, I think it was once a month, and discusses what's the best thing for the outcome of this business park. Mm-hmm. And it was all about mutual support, mutual collaboration. You know, if I screw you down too hard on your margin to supply me on that, you're gonna, you're not going to be able to thrive. Therefore, I'm not going to get what I want You know, on time, in budget, etc. Um, and they ran this experiment for, I think, for a decade and... And it was very, very successful, but for whatever reason, it wasn't continued. Um, and I, I, again, I have this conversation with people a lot about managing suppliers. Like we end up sort of tra- running training courses on managing your suppliers. And a lot of the time, people just want to talk about, again, to reference your language, they want to talk about the linear logic. Mm-hmm. You know, they want to talk about negotiating. They want to talk about procurement. You know, they want to talk about basically how do you kind of manage this transaction and very rarely... We, we, we try to bring them along this path. Do people come into these forums really understanding that that is a relationship and it's a relationship of mutual sustainability mm-hmm. where we, you are sustaining me and I need to sustain yeah. you. And I think we are, this seems to be entering the global consciousness of corporates that, that this is starting to come home, hopefully before it's too late. Um, and I don't think this current climate is, is helping certainly not the little players. Um, But I think that this is, this is absolutely a calling card and a call to action now that we need to embrace this way of sustaining each other as organizational entities in the way that a natural system feeds itself. Um, Because otherwise, uh, yeah, well, I think there's, there's any number of reasons why there's a, there's a collapse coming our way. Let's talk about visa. What Mm -hmm. were, what was the, uh, what was the case study that, uh, that you wanted to reference? Well, um, Visa was founded 
and and actually um well the concept was developed by d hawk who's been the original founder and and the first cao of visa and he's always been very interested in systems thinking and complexity thinking so when he he was asked to to develop like a credit card system um he immediately thought it has to align with the way that nature works. And I must say, I think it's the most successful bio-inspired business model. Um, I'm not good with numbers, but they're, uh, what is it? Um, not multi-million, but multi-trillion company at the moment. Um, yeah, for sure. And what Hog did was for the it was so pioneering so instead of him being the ceo and telling the others what to do he created the conditions for co-creation so he knew that nature doesn't work top down she always works from the bottom up so you just have to create the conditions for all the, the isolated singular banks to come together in an environment and then co-create this credit card system, uh, which took a long time, but it was it was brilliant because it is the way that nature works. It is it's far more complex than someone telling now you do this, you do that. But it's also once it works, it's far more resilient and powerful than anything else. And what also blew my mind is that D. Hawk also realized that there's no mon monopolies or monocultures in nature. So he always said, we have to keep the field open for competitors. Mm -hmm. So we will never become the, the, the only or the singular credit card system, which, which raised a lot of opposition from very powerful players. Um, but he had the stamina and the guts to keep his points. Um, and so, so now we have MasterCard, which is a much more healthy system than if there were only one, right? Um, yeah. And so, yeah, he, the way that he set it up, he also started from simple principles. Uh, just as a guiding light, that, that was the only thing. And then he allowed the, the people to co-create the system from the bottom up. And that's how it worked. And it's, it's actually amazing that so few people know this example because it's, his book is also highly recommendable. Um, I've enjoyed it a lot. Uh, one from many is the title. So he created the one from, from many, many different uh, um, partners and players. And so he's also very much aware of the, um, yeah, the networked way of life. It's, it's, you have to develop into a networked system um, uh, and using these, these simple principles as guiding lights has been a very powerful uh, way of setting up something that a lot of people thought was uh, undoable in that time yeah no i mean it's a, I'm, I'm glad that, that, that we've 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 cut we've made the time where we've come back there and we've explored that because yeah i wasn't aware of the extent to which that was unique and it was pioneering 
Yeah. Um, so, no, thank you, thank you for that. So, we just 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 building on that example uh, to to circle back to to one of the um, you know the sort of the passageways that we we, we walked past a little bit earlier on. What, you know, we talked about you know sort of people that that just don't sort of see how to make a change and and I think an inherent issue that that I come up against again and again in our work is it's just a level of awareness around mm-hmm. actually what you can do and and how powerful you can be even as a single individual mm-hmm. but what for you just so the, the, the couple of questions here so the first one is what would you say you know the sort of the specific role of leaders is in in this whole equation um yeah, I've been thinking about these questions for a long time too. Um, and if I look at the world around me, then I have a sense that most people are, are sleepwalking through life. It's as if they're leading a life that's not the life of their choice. They're just in the rat race so I guess leaders are the first one that have to wake themselves up. Um, and there's various ways of how to do that. But I guess one crucial ingredient is to take a time out. Um, step out of the rat race and, and the, the fast moving world where there's only to-do lists and things that are urgent. Just step out. Um, and nature has been actually for, for many pioneers that, that I've encountered, nature has been the one that helped them see, um, the world anew and see that actually they, they were not in charge of their own life. And so, yeah, taking time out and try to spend that somewhere in nature uh, some can go camping, others go hiking or paragliding, whatever. Um, and, well, yeah, I think that is the first step. And if it has woken you up, then trying to look for what is your true essence and what is the role that you are here to play um, for me, that was the realization I was in sustainability R and D. And my essence was actually still in biology and crossing the bridge, um, connecting the, the, the world of business with the world of biology. That's where I find that my specific contribution could lie. And everyone has, has this essence and the specific role, contribution, talent that they can play out in the world, uh, in the world. So wake up from from the rat race world and then wake up through to your own true potential and then just go for it don't use any excuses to 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 bury that or to say yeah we'll do that when we're pensioned but somehow try to grow the courage to go for it and change what needs to be changed. And it can be, you can change a company from the inside out or you can leave and create something completely new. There's many, many different ways. There's not one blueprint. So everyone will have to find out for themselves where their specific talent meets the needs of the world and then you have a match and, and yeah, 
that's where it starts and then you take it from there yeah that 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 in of itself i think is is the crux of mm-hmm. yeah, this conversation I, I i think there's a there's an <laughs> an inherent and now a very explicit alignment of if I may allow myself to uh, relate to you directly, you know, in our thinking and and what I think what we're both trying to achieve in, in our own individual ways and, and through our own entities and organisations, um, because I, I I talk about this day in day out. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I I've had you know really salient encounters with people who I've been very impressed and intimidated by when I first met them, and they they seem externally very assured and very successful and on this trajectory and you just think wow there's nothing stopping this person and then but for some reason you know they're curious about what you do and they 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 invite you to spend some time with them and then they ask you for some help or some advice or just to just to sit with them and two two poignant examples in particular one a, a very conflicted executive who was just demonstrating a lot of behaviors that when they were then called out on them, almost didn't seem to recognize that they were the perpetrator of them. Mm. And this was just put down to them being very stressed. And, you know, this is just, this is just a denial reaction. And they're very focused on the outcome. They want to get that target. I mean, that's always the justification. And we spent some time together and, what it boiled down to was this one comment that they made that essentially when they get up in the morning and they think about going to work, it feels like they're being choked to death. Mm-hmm. Right? I, mean, I mean, this was literally their, their language, right? And, you know, and, and they had their, their hands up around their throat as, as they declared this, this, this sentiment. Um, and essentially what it came down to was that this person – was so far separated from their essence, to use mm-hmm. your term, mm-hmm. you know that their, you know, sort of view of where they thought things were going mm-hmm. and the path that their, you know, sort of self and their emotions and their purpose was taking them towards had mm-hmm. been disrupted, in a very legitimate sense, but that that trajectory had then spun them way, way, way off where mm-hmm. where they ultimately felt they should be. Um, and the other example was less evocative than that, but no more tragic in a sense where another senior executive, you know, who's working for one of Australia's top firms and has worked for one of the world's most illustrious strategy companies, you know, someone who's been through Harvard, who's has done all these things. And I, I sort of find myself honored to be in the presence of sits there and looks at me and says, but what you're doing is so incredible. And, and so inspiring and I just I just don't know what to do mm-hmm. and I don't know what I'm doing and I don't know why I'm doing what I'm doing mm-hmm. and, and that to me is a, is, a, is a tragedy of life right you know to be yeah. in a situation when mm-hmm. so you have this incredible world-changing mm-hmm. potential bottled up and it just doesn't have an application yeah yeah you know I mean you speak at length in here we are natural intelligence you, know, you can give the full title in a moment, but you know about really you know sort of there are so many ways and means that you can you know sort of take a lot of experience mm-hmm. and application, but that a really significant change has to mm-hmm. come. You know, you've seen yours, you've made a change, you've made a you know a significant pivot, 
and it's working and we're going to talk about the book and then we're going to talk about what comes next in a minute. Um, you know, I've done the same and I'm seeing more and more people doing it, but it doesn't have to be this, you know, sort of like uprooting, right? You don't have to, mm -hmm. to use an analogy. You have to grab a plant, you know, sort of by the stem and pull mm -hmm. it out and, and, and plant it again. If anything, that's the worst thing to do, mm -hmm. right? You know, you want to cultivate it and nurture and give it the support to grow, but you actually want to double down on its strengths. Mm -hmm. And I, again, I say this to people all the time. It's like, don't leave everything that you've ever done behind and go over there, you know, and, mm -hmm. and just discard everything you have. You actually want to sort of migrate all of that as much as you can. Mm -hmm. You know, if you germinate something in a greenhouse, you want to plant it in full sun. You don't just take it out of the greenhouse and go put it in the scorching sun, right? Like it's a, it's a progression through shade to get it there. So that's what we need to do. Mm -hmm. um, so thank you for bearing with me through that. Um, I hope I'm certain, but I'm sure that people are going to listen to this and are going to want to tap into more of your wisdom and your inspiration. So let's talk about one of the key ways people can find out more about you have to recommend and what you're doing. Let's talk about natural intelligence. Yeah. So first off, it's it's not my wisdom. I'm just one <laughs> of the spreaders. So um, sure. if your you seed get, in this big, this you know, big sort of yeah, yeah. storm of seed. Sure. Yeah, and and I'm just yeah one evolutionary step, and I'm building on the knowledge and the wisdom of many many others uh, people Aren't that for me, uh, which I refer to in the book uh, as much as I can or as much as was possible. So yeah, I've I told you a little bit about my background, and I really. I was actually um, inspired by this um, insight that someone shared, who uh, someone who works with terminal people. And she said, one of the things that I really learned from working with, with all these people is that um, they don't have any regrets about the things that went wrong. But if they have regrets, it's about the things that they didn't do. Um, and so that kind of has inspired me, like maybe this, this step that I took, maybe it will, it will not work out. But, but then at least I know I will have tried and I will not regret not having tried it. So that's one of, of the motivations um, that keeps me going. And so... There is so much wisdom in nature and intelligence. Um, life has been around for 3.8 billion years. Uh, despite cosmic collisions, but despite major upheaval and disruption, life is still alive today after 3.8 billion years. So for me, that shows that life has worked out an incredibly um, intelligent way of staying alive. So, so I think if we can tap into that natural intelligence that has been embedded in all the life forms that have been alive for millions of years, that we actually might find, find the, the effective solutions uh, that we, we have been looking and struggling for, but which we haven't managed 
to well to get to yet so that inspired me to um create workshops for business people on innovation and what they can actually learn from nature um and those workshops entail systems thinking, so helping people emerging them into systems and how systems operate, helping them to co to become more um, comfortable with complexity and chaos because it's part of life. We try to keep the chaos as small as possible and make everything simple but life is not working that way so we we better get comfortable with change with disruption with complexity and and if you do it's easier to go through life uh, yeah you spend less time afraid if you can understand how everything is, is connected and so after doing these workshops i could really see that uh, People uh, from the business world enjoyed them a lot. Um, and that I woke something up in them. An energy, you could see lights going on in their eyes. Um, and so after a while, I thought maybe I should put it into a book uh, so I can share it with a broader audience. And so that was how the book, which is called Building the Future of Innovation, on millions of years of natural intelligence came about and it's been just released in the beginning of July uh, and it is available online. Um, so, so I share a lot of the recent insights from biology uh, and what they might mean uh, for the way that we innovate, for the way that we make policies, for the, the way that we organize ourselves, our companies. Um, and so it's, it's an attempt to bring this kind of intelligence that has managed to survive for millions of years um into the the yeah our business world um so that we might hopefully learn from it and try to engage with it so that we don't have to struggle so much um and that we can use some of these lessons uh, from nature and apply them in in real life so that has been uh, the journey of the book um yeah and I mean, I, I declared it publicly just today, uh, but I am, I'm, I'm now like gratuitously promoting this as my favourite book of 2020. So there you go you. for all of my influence for what it's worth. Yeah. Uh, really, re I, I, I love this book. I don't think I got a, a pre-launch version, but I got a, I, I was on the bandwagon very early, um, and as soon as I read it, I just thought, there we go. That's that's everything that I think is is what's needed essentially um, to hopefully be received and be the stimulus of this you know tumultuous wave of of of, mm -hmm. um, of change that we need but you know how does a wave start yeah it's that little kind mm -hmm. of push that breath of wind far out to sea and it just builds it builds it builds it builds it builds yeah. um, and let's let's talk a little bit now again full circle Let's talk about what's coming, you know, what's next, what you're building towards. You know, we started with this question about the transition that you've been through. Mm -hmm. So what is the next chapter in the journey for you, Lean? Yeah. 
So Natural Intelligence, the book is based on many different disciplines that um, start from how the biology works. So it's, it's, uh, it covers biomimicry, nature-based solutions, permaculture, systems thinking, regenerative design and development and so forth. And those are all very strong new disciplines um, who start from biology uh, but try to make an impact in the world uh, guided by the way that life works. Um, and so the book has been a bit like a seed that I've sent out into the world. And now um, in a few months, I will be launching the Center for Natural Intelligence. And hopefully that can be the breeding ground or the fertile soil for some of those seeds to to, to grow and to mature plants that can send out their own seeds. Um, so that's what's coming up in the next months. We will be launching um, the Center for Natural Intelligence and it will, it will be in the form of a, a beehive or a, uh, it's, it will not be located in one specific spot, but it can swarm out to wherever it needs to go. Uh, creating the conditions for pollination so that everything can flourish, so that the flowers get fertilized and, and the fruits can, can grow. Um, we will also probably have a, um, a nature retreat spot in, in France where we will engage with the land um, because the land is such a powerful teacher itself uh, once you engage with the land so we want to restore and regenerate the land and also have the land be a teacher for the people who are ready to rediscover their, themselves to look for their essence to look how they can create a positive impact in the world or how they can give a new um, creative um, breeze to their innovation strategies and so forth. So we will be establishing one of those spots in, in the middle of France uh, and probably we will also have uh, collaborators in other parts of the world where we will do the same. And we hope that like with a healthy beehive, we can grow so that once the colony gets too big, we split up and establish a new colony elsewhere. And, and yeah, to grow it from the bottom up, that's a little bit uh, the aspiration. And the aspiration is actually to help companies, to help governments, um, to uh, innovate the way that nature innovates. Um, there's, I didn't mention it before, but there are also many examples in the book from companies that have engaged with this kind of thinking on very different levels. So for product innovation, for process innovation, for um, systems innovation, and even for um, creating or getting rid of the triple bottom line and going for we are a regenerative company we are aiming for positive impact in the world and so we hope to be um, the ones that can pollinate this thinking in the world but that that can also help establish uh, these change trajectories and can support these change trajectories with uh, the companies that are ready and the governments and businesses that are ready. 
So yeah. that's. I mean, that sounds spellbinding. I've been sitting here mesmerized by this uh, this description. Uh, I'm in. Sign me up. I'll okay. be I'll be there as, as soon as possible, as yeah. soon as you know travel restrictions allow. Uh, yeah. But no, I think more than anything else, I love the analogy of the swarm. I mean, and then this, mm-hmm. this is something we we won't you know have time to get into now. But again, is another key feature yeah. that stood out to me about the book about this sort of transient transfer of benefit mm-hmm. that you know these sort of swarm intelligences have, mm-hmm. um, and I mean. There are examples that we could point to like locusts where ne- not necessarily, you know, sort of their uh, intrusion is beneficial in the short term. But, you know, certainly bees, um, I think, is just the perfect analogy. And, and I love this notion and this strategy that you have, um, if I can apply a logical term to it, of, yeah, this is a this is a place to curate, to germinate, um, you know, these seeds potentially for the first time. Um, and then they go out and, 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 and that, you know, or, or they go with a, you know, a swarm, um, you know, and, and, and then they go on and they, they take the pollination mm-hmm. into a new ecology and, and into a new, and whether that's an organization or a family unit mm-hmm. or a country, um, wherever it may be, it's an, it's an osmosis transfer that, that we need to start as soon as possible and, and perpetuate. So, yeah. uh, yeah. I'm in and let's go and let's, let's see where we can take it. Yeah. Um, so there's a couple of websites and, and obviously your, your, your sort of public, um, you know, sort of networking, uh, LinkedIn and so forth. I'll include all of those in the show notes. Is there anything in particular that you would like to uh, say, any, any sort of parting words or, or a final, you know, sort of provocation uh, that you'd like to just sort of signal out to the world as, uh, as, as we move to, uh, unfortunately, put this, uh, this conversation to rest for the time being? Yeah, well, maybe one thing that a lot of people ask me um, when I give keynotes or workshops, like, okay, but where do we start um, the challenges, they are so massive that it might daunt us and we might lose hope to ever make an impact. But if you, if you look at life, every, well, everything starts at the smallest level. It's, it's like chromosomes collaborating with chromosomes, genes collaborating with genes, cells collaborating with cells, tissues collaborating with tissues. So it's, Every change starts at a very, very small level. So, so just make the change that you think is required now at the smallest level. And yeah, look, look for opportunities to scale it up. And, and even the smallest impact can make a huge, huge difference, uh, difference in the world. Um, I think it was... Um, or, or no, I forgot the name, but there was someone that said, like, if you think you're too small to matter, just think of the mosquito in your room, right? And no one is too small to matter. And uh, exponential change is actually if you do something good and it gets multiplied by two other persons. That's exponential change. And it's so easy um so so yeah do something good for for the environment for your family for the planet for your community and and try to get two other 
persons to do that too. And that's how we can, can start an exponential change wave. And we can change the world in, in just a few years. We don't need decades to do that. So let's no, end Thank you. That's a perfect summation and, and a great call to action. So I'm not going to ruin it by, <laughs> by, by interceding. Uh, I'm just going to say thank you. Uh, and thank you for everything that you've done and everything that you're doing. You are absolutely making the world better. And in terms of right now, here's one out of the two people that you need to influence today to perpetuate that movement. Uh, so uh, I'll go I'll go find somebody else and, and we'll be heading in the right direction. Yeah, that's really good to know. Thank you so much. <laughs> there we go if you've made it this far and i really hope you have then good on you and again thank you for your time and attention and i hope that like me you've now emerged from this conversation greatly informed and vastly inspired and really just wanting to find out more about how we can apply this great knowledge that that lean's developing along with others in this realm and just to quote one of the references that, that I, uh, I found as I was researching for this conversation with Lean, which is from the former EU Commissioner for the Environment, that the circular bio-based economy is the oldest concept on the earth. That nothing is lost and everything has a purpose. And I mean, the quote goes on, but that, that to me, I just thought was such a poignant reflection on Lean's work and one which I think if we challenged the majority of the organisations that we interact with on a daily basis, we'd find that they're either not aware of that or if they are, they would really struggle to apply it to their current business models. So what are the standout moments? And there were many, but I'm just going to pick two. And that's a difficult task but I appreciate your time and attention and I've already asked a lot of it. So these were the two that really stood out to me and they're both provocations. One is this real sort of challenge that we have to ask of ourselves, are we creating monocultures of thought, particularly organisationally? And I see this all the time. Unfortunately, the answer being yes. But if we are doing that, are we really paying attention to what's beneficial about that system and, and what really is the vulnerability that we're creating and the inherent danger that having monocultures of anything, but particularly thought and organisational culture and behaviour and so forth, what are the real dangers of that? Especially when it comes to disruption, vulnerability to change. That those are real effects that we're all feeling right now. And we can look at many, many disruptive economic events and, and, and go, okay, well, was there a singular line of thought that the majority were signed up to that ultimately blinded them to the anticipation, let alone the adaptability of that disruptive event that occurred? So that's the first one. The second one then was this really strong call out that Lean gave to leaders to wake themselves up. And her comment that, in her experience, many people she finds are simply sleepwalking through life. Now, that's not a message that a lot of people are going to want to hear. So if we accept that that is the case, we need to find the right language to trigger an opportunity to enter into a dialogue with leaders 
and essentially get them to confront that just staying in your lane and just doing what you've always been told is the right thing to do or you're setting you up for the success that you believe you want we need to confront that and as I reflected with lean I've had enough and frankly far too many encounters with very senior leaders very influential people who themselves are intensely dissatisfied with where they are or very dislocated from any real true purpose and calling and of course what I'd like to do is, with your help, reconnect leaders to a sense of purpose, to a sense of contributing to something bigger than themselves. And how about this fight that we would like to take to anyone who resists the notion of making the world better, being the highest purpose that there is? Those are the two that stood out for me. I would really love to hear from you in your comments and your messages about what stood out about this conversation for you and I truly hope that you will scroll down through the show notes there are two resources in particular there Lean's book and the um, D. Hock book uh, on um, you know one from many that I think would be beautiful compliments to this conversation and feel free to get in touch with Lean directly she's very encouraging of that and let's see if we can get a swarm out of this conversation of our very own uh, that we can, uh, we can take off into the world ourselves. Thank you, as always. I look forward to bringing you yet another Better World Leaders conversation just in a few weeks' time. As always, great thanks and appreciation to the team who contributed to bringing Better World Leaders to you to Brendan Ward for production of all audio recordings and composition and performance of original music throughout each episode, to Cooper and the team at Radio Hub Studios for technical support and creative guidance during the episodes that are recorded face-to-face, to Knock Knock Studios for website design, hosting and advice, and to Sarasa Design for logo and site graphics. You'll find audio and video recordings of this episode, as well as links to any specific recommendations or related resources that were mentioned today in the podcast area of 4iLeadership.com backslash insights. This is the Better World Leaders podcast, brought to you by 4i Leadership. to world.